Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with all those of you who are here this morning and for those of you that are joining with us online. Uh, and happy Pentecost. Hey. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Um, just wanted to make sure you all were still awake. Uh, so a little while ago, I was reading through the book of Exodus, and there's this section where, so Moses and the Israelites have just left, uh, have just entered into the wilderness. Um, Moses has this dialogue with God about how he wants to know him and be known by him. And he says this to the Lord, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Teach me your ways so I may know you. And it struck me in that moment as I was reading that, that that's what we're seeking to do in this Lifestyle of Jesus series. That's what we're hoping for. We're, we're following Jesus through the Gospel of Luke and asking him to teach us his ways so that we can know him better, so that we can live the life that he's called us to live by his spirit. Why? Because as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. That he may be glorified in us and we in him. You know, because of Pentecost, that is now possible for us. That we have his Holy Spirit now dwelling within us. He is wanting to be glorified in us and we in him. As Pastor Liz mentioned, we can be that close to Jesus. We can follow him in the way that he calls us to follow him by the power of his Holy Spirit. We're not doing this by ourselves. And so I want to encourage you this morning to hold on to that truth as we again encounter one of these passages in the Gospel of Luke, looking at what Jesus has done, but remembering that the way that he calls us to follow him, we're not doing it by ourselves. We're doing it by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what we want. That's what our Christian hearts most desire, for him to be glorified in us, to be so in Christ that he is our greatest priority, that we look like him as we live out our own lives by his spirit because to follow him, what that, what that meant for his disciples was to prioritize him, to set everything else aside, not as if all that stuff doesn't matter, but it doesn't take the, the best seat anymore. It doesn't have the highest priority in our lives because putting him first is actually better for everyone. Putting him first is actually better for everyone. Do we trust that? Do we trust that that is actually the case? Do we trust that setting aside everything for him to prioritize him, asking questions of him, learning from him, spending time being in him to look more like him will actually be better for everyone? If that's what we believe, then it's really important for us to really spend time exploring this. So this morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We're reading verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave some also to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so again, what's going on in this passage, and what do we see Jesus doing? We've got two situations here, two scenes here, and both of them lead to the same general conclusion. First scene, Jesus is walking through some, of the, some grain fields with his disciples, and the disciples begin to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and then go ahead and eat the kernels. Now, this seemingly innocent activity really frustrates some of these Pharisees who kind of just pop out of nowhere as if they're sort of sneakily following Jesus around, and they ask, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, on first read, you could probably agree with the Pharisees. I mean, aren't the disciples stealing? Like, is that really okay to just be walking through someone's grain fields and just pick some of the grain and eat it? Like, is, is that not... Is that not unlawful? It actually reminded me of growing up on Matsky Flats out in Abbotsford, and we, my family lived on this dead-end road, and along the road, the bus would always drop us off at the end, so we had to walk down. It was about a five- to ten-minute walk. Um, we had neighbors that had blueberry bushes, just rows upon rows of blueberry bushes, and there, there was netting covering it, but every once in a while, you know, we'd hop the ditch as we were walking home and snap a few of the blueberries and have a little handful snack as you're walking back to the house. I know, I was a terrible child, don't judge me. But that's what I thought about as, as I'm reading this passage, that this, these disciples are literally just grabbing a snack as they walk along. But actually, in Jewish law, this kind of thing was totally permitted. Anyone traveling on foot was allowed to help themselves to open fields if they were hungry. Look at Deuteronomy 23. It says, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. In other words, take only what you need in that moment. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. Right? So we're talking immediate needs in the moment. In other words, feeding the hungry was a high priority in Jewish law. If you were hungry, there was the assumption that your neighbors would be willing, as long as you didn't take advantage of them, but your neighbors should be willing uh, to let you share in their resources. Right? It was this, this community of sharing, of taking care of one another. The problem then here is not that the disciples then are picking grain. It's not what they're doing. The problem is that they're doing it on Sabbath. I don't know, some of you may have grown up with this, but my mom, when we were kids, whenever we would go out on a Sunday, like to a movie or something, and we were spending money, she would usually jokingly say to us, up Sunday? And for those of you who are familiar with Dutch language, that means, on Sunday? Yes, <laughs> on Sunday. Why are the disciples doing something that is unlawful on Sabbath? Because reaping 
threshing, winnowing, and preparing food, those four activities were all seen as work. Yes, those are regular activities that many Jewish people did during the weeks. That was their job. But technically, the disciples, in, in plucking grain, winnowing or threshing it in their hands, taking off the husks, and then eating it and preparing food for themselves, was technically breaking all four of those restrictions. Which sounds, yes, utterly ludicrous to us, but we have to understand that the Pharisees and the scribes had written a great quantity of regulations over the years, over the decades and centuries, on top of the law of Moses in order to create a structure and greater understanding of what Sabbath was and was not, of what Sabbath should consist of and should not consist of. Because it enabled them to have greater control over the narrative, right? Remember, Israel is in slavery to Rome at the moment. They're they're dominated by another empire. They've lost control. They're not their own nation anymore. They're, They're controlled by another empire. And what always happens, what always happens when we lose control? We try to create structures by which we can regain a sense of order and control to feel like there's some level of stability. So the Pharisees enforced rigidity upon rigidity in order to create a sense of stability and urge an act of God, right? If we're really holy, then God will come. If we can stick to these rules, then God will come back and we can be our own nation again under him. But, and and this was the chronic problem of Israel, in the midst of all of these man-made laws and structures, they had lost sight of who their God really was. So when the Pharisees question the disciples, again, just like last week, Jesus has to step in for the, you know, the tongue-tied disciples who haven't even really probably realized that they've just done something wrong. It's a beautiful, actually, image when you think about it. These disciples are just following along with Jesus, and they've gotten so accustomed to being around him, they don't even realize anymore when they're doing something unlawful. But Jesus has to step in to answer for them, and he tries to reorient the Pharisees with a story from the scriptures where David, the King David, entered the house of God when he was being pursued by King Saul at the time, and he ate some of the consecrated bread. What's the big deal about this bread? Well, in the temple, back in the day, every morning there were 12 loaves of freshly baked bread that were set out to symbolize, it was called the bread of the presence, it symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel and how God's presence was with each one of them. Now, the old bread would get swapped out for new bread, right? So the old bread had already been swapped out when David and his companions came needing food. So the priest at the time, Ahimelech, gives them this recently swapped out bread. But the problem was that that bread was meant to only be eaten by priests. That was a Levitical law. So yes, when you're reading through that, David, the anointed king, David, the greatest king of Israel, the one from whom the Messiah is supposed to come, David did something unlawful. It's no small thing then, in other words, for Jesus to be quoting this narrative, right? Because if King David could be such a lover of the law, you see that all over the Psalms, Lord, I love your law, yada, yada, yada. If he could discern 
if he could be able to discern when it was appropriate to fudge the lines a little bit for the sake of human need and mercy, understanding the greater scope of the law and what the law is really about, how much more then could the Messiah do this? Could the Messiah himself discern this? David ate of the bread of the presence, and now the real presence of the living God is in front of these Pharisees, but they are utterly blind to it. They know the scriptures inside and out, and yet they've completely missed the point, specifically of Sabbath. We'll come back to this, but let's go to the second scene here. The second scene, because it shows the same problem. On another Sabbath, Jesus goes into the synagogue to teach, and there's a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, the Pharisees are watching closely, right? They're trying to catch Jesus in something. They're trying to find something. So they're actively looking to catch him in his words or in an action. Um, but there was, this, there was this other regulation which said that you could only heal on the Sabbath if someone's life was in danger, okay? So if, if your ox or your child falls into a well, you're allowed to go and save them. That doesn't count as work, but normally that would count as work. But it had to be a life-threatening thing for you to do it on Sabbath, which again sounds ridiculous to us, but these Pharisees had written so much in addition to the scriptures that there was a whole section of the Jewish Midrash that was devoted to simply telling you what consisted of work and what wasn't work, right? So if you do it this way, it's work. If you don't do it this way, it's not work, right? All sorts of rules surrounding that so that it could be specific, right? So that people could know. But look at now what Jesus does. This time around, he's going to press his point a little differently. He tells the man to stand up in front of everyone, and then he asks a question. Verse 9, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To, to do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? Think of the simplicity of that question compared to an entire anthology of rules surrounding Sabbath, right? The simplicity of this question, he simplifies it. He, he, the question implies, he only gives them two options, right? And this just isn't in the framework of the Pharisees because his question implies that you are either doing one or the other. You can't kind of do one and kind of do the other. You are either giving life or you are taking it away. And if you are refusing someone life, there's no way to qualify this as a good thing. You are taking life away. So, needless to say, Jesus allows his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Why? What is Jesus doing? It may be instinctive for us here to think that Jesus is uh, redefining Sabbath or, or reframing it as if there was sort of like an old way of thinking about it and now there's this new way. But no, that's not actually the case at all. He's rediscovering Sabbath. He's gaining it back. He's reminding his disciples of what Sabbath was always meant to be about. In other words, he's celebrating the truthful realities of Sabbath. He's celebrating Sabbath. That Sabbath was always meant to be about human flourishing. 
Because remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It is a gift for you, not man for the Sabbath. And ironically, he's actually quoting a rabbinical statement there. (laughs) Sabbath was always meant to be a day for human flourishing for feasting, for delighting in and celebrating the gift of life, for getting away from our regular activities and allowing God's activity to be recognized and acknowledged. It was a day meant for God's people to take on a spirit of restfulness, a once a week celebration of resting in all that is good in God's world, all that's going on without us even knowing it. And Jesus is reminding us, and not not just reminding us, again, this whole series about how Jesus demonstrates to us. He's demonstrating to us that Sabbath was meant to be a day specifically for three things, okay? Mercy, joy, and worship. Mercy, joy, and worship, okay? So mercy. Why mercy? Think about how the Sabbath came about. It was after the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, They were wandering through the deserts, anticipating the promised land, learning about who this God was who had just rescued them. And now this God tells them that in every week, one day is meant to be a gift where you do not work. That was unheard of in slave culture. It was a completely foreign concept. Slaves which is what they just were, remember, right? They were slaves. Slaves don't get a day off. They don't get rest. They work every day, all day, until they can't work anymore. They're subhuman, right? They're, they're less than human. Just an, a number on a spreadsheet. Their whole purpose was to build the empire, was to build the machine of the empire and to keep the wheels turning, right? At the foundation of every great empire is a whole host of slaves, keeping the machine running. For Israel then, to be commanded not to work on Sabbath on one day was to allow everyone in that community, slaves included, to enter the rest of God. In other words, this wasn't just for a select group of people. This was for everyone. Exodus 23 says this, Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that if born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Which for them too would have been a completely foreign concept. But in other words, biblical ethics at at its finest, right? This is where you see the continuity between the old and the new. God did not look at them as Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female. Everyone received his gifts as one body, as one group of people. Even the livestock got this. It was an alternative way of living to the exploitative ways of the world, to the ways of the empires, to the madness of production and consumption of empires like Egypt, to their their self-serving and destructive covetousness where, where nothing's ever enough. Right? It's always got to be more. It's always got to be bigger. It's always got to be greater. This was the way, the, the rhythm that Israel was called to follow in order to care well for all those who lived among them. A way that knew limits 
that knew healthy boundaries and margins, that trusted in the productivity of God first and foremost. So then letting wayfarers and passerbys eat out of one's field was a means of caring for the community. It was a justice issue. It was a way to ensure that Israel didn't get sucked back into the ways of other slave-driving cultures, or even worse, become a slave driver themselves. Which is something for us to keep in mind as well, right? Because as one author put it, Egypt, my friends, he says, is alive and well. Egypt is not so different. Egypt was not so different from our Western society. Don't get me wrong, there's some significant differences, but when you think about it, obsessed with industrial and innovative success, workers being driven to exhaustion, pharaohs and leaders all about feverish productivity, everything was about accumulation and wealth and appearances, and time will not allow us to go into all of our modern-day slave systems operating in this world, but if you just think about it on a smaller scale, how many of us have felt slave to the North American hamster wheel. The wheel that just keeps, the pressure that just keeps turning and spinning and innovating and, and causing us to fear this idea of losing steam or becoming irrelevant. It's just this wheel that keeps turning and turning, these rhythms that we catch on to, that cause us to, to exist in this pressure-filled fear of never doing enough, never being enough, always having to do more. Sabbath is an act of resistance against the pressures, against the pressures of commerce, against the pressures of working overtime, against the, 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 the reality that, that everyone needs to, to constantly be doing something, against the temptation to feel guilty or lazy for taking a day off. As followers of Jesus, we follow him in the way that he celebrated Sabbath by insisting that every single person needs rest. Every single person needs a day a week as an act of mercy to rest in the productivity of God. This has massive implications. I mean, it's so, it has been so embedded in Christian culture for, for years now, but this has massive implications for how, how many of us as Christian employers, business operators, managers, CEOs, bosses, how we treat and care for our employees. How we show them the ways and the rhythm of Jesus. Jesus was never in a rush. Jesus was never hurrying from one thing to another. Jesus always had time for people. He always had space. He always had margin. He knew his limitations. We simply cannot flourish without it. Six days, we spend our time creating order, transforming systems, forming and shaping the world and figuring out structures and systems that work. But on the seventh, we stop. We stop and we pause and we allow ourselves to be transformed. Because not only is Sabbath a day of mercy, it's also a day of joy. Why joy? Well, the answer is really simple. Sabbath is just sheer delight. We Sabbath for the sheer joy of doing nothing that we should do, but instead celebrating that rest that we have in God. I like to call it my free day. It's, it literally feels like this extra day in the week that's just completely free. 
Six days of the week, I work, I run errands, I make calls, I make appointments, I do all of that. But on Sabbath, the world ceases to revolve around me and instead revolves around the God who commands me to delight in his gifts. To simply spend time delighting in his goodness and knowing that I don't have to do anything to gain his favor. I remember while studying at Regent, uh, feeling a need, feeling the urge to convince one of my housemates that she needed to Sabbath. That she was missing out on, on the best day of the week. She was constantly restless. She was working on a thesis at the time, so I couldn't really blame her for it. But she was restless. She was fearful of getting everything done. Always worrying, always frantic, always fret, fretting about this and that. And I said, friend, you need to stop. This isn't freeing for you. This isn't what flourishing looks like. This isn't what Jesus wants for you. Don't get me wrong. There are seasons of, of things being a little crazy, but this isn't what Jesus wants for you. Shoot, even science says this. It's been proven study after study that there is zero correlation between hurry and productivity. Zero. Zero correlation. One study found that there was zero difference between workers who logged 70 hours in a week and those who logged 50. Made no difference. It is complete falsehood. And I know some of you will argue with me on this, but I'm, gonna, I'm pushing this. It is complete falsehood to say that rushing will equate to getting more things done. I've learned that the hard way. It is complete falsehood. We need to stop that. And we need to stop encouraging people. And, and saying that busyness and rushing is a value. It's not. I know you're busy, but could you just give, no, I'm not busy. <laughs> I shouldn't be busy. When this housemaid of mine took her first Sabbath, she was a different person. A weight was lifted off of her shoulders. I remember the first day she took Sabbath, she was baking, she was going out for walks, collecting flowers. She's a really artistic um, kind of individual. And she, it was as if she had regained her soul. And you know what? It all boiled down to trust. Could she trust that Jesus would help her get everything done that needed to get done? And what she discovered was that, yes, she could trust that. The work always got done, and oftentimes more efficiently because she had rested. The Hebrew word for Sabbath means rest or stop, but it can also mean delight. Which implies that when we rest in God, we are also giving space to delight. Stopping and delighting go hand in hand. Because when we do this on a regular basis, we rhythmically acknowledge the rule of God in our lives and we actually hand our lives back to him in gratitude. Which always leads to delight, to joy. Because we simply let ourselves enjoy the gift of life without all of these other pressures. 
A friend of mine once wrote a paper on, on the importance of, of rest, play, and, and, uh, and work, this balance, which I thought was really helpful. So I wanted to just quickly show you this picture. Um, I've tried to hold on to it. It shows three concentric circles and how they're all meant to be in balance with one another. And I'm going to come to the screen a little closely here, but I know it's for you guys. It's on the screen there. So there's, these, there's the circle of work, the circle of Sabbath, and the circle of play. And Two of them always go together, right? So work and Sabbath are both structured. Sabbath and play are both leisure. And then play and work are both activity. And when you have appropriate balance, that activity leads you to rest, if you, if you follow the arrows there. The leisure leads you to greater purpose in work. And having a structured, having part of your life structured leads to greater spontaneity in play, right? So there's this beautiful balancing of these things. And, and I, I know it's probably hard to take that all in in the moment, but just keep those three concentric circles in mind, right? Because when those are in balance, they actually support the others much better. Sabbath is, is a lifestyle that when we, when we can operate in that kind of balance, Sabbath is a lifestyle that helps to define all the other things that we do. It helps to define all the other days of the week. As Walter Brueggemann said, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. It completely changes the way that you rhythmically go about your week. And I want you to look quick, uh, just briefly at this list that John Mark Comer has put together. And I have to go close to this one again. But he's got these two columns, a column of restfulness and a column of relentlessness. And you can see, if you just look at those words, I want you to question, where do you fit? <laughs> In which column do you regularly exist in, right? There's the column of restfulness, which is margin, slowness, quiet, deep relationships, time alone, delight, enjoyment, clarity, gratitude, contentment, trust, love, joy, peace, working from love, working as contribution, in contrast to relentlessness, which is, of course, busyness, hurry, noise, isolation, crowds, distraction, etc., etc. You can see, look, go, just going down the list. And I want you to notice at the bottom here, working for love, right? In contrast to working from love, you are working for love, and you're working as accumulation and accomplishment. Where do you fit, right? Where, can you see yourself in operating majorly in, in one, or one of those columns. Which one? And how does it feel for me to tell you that Jesus wants you to operate in the first one? How does it feel for me to tell you that Jesus wants us to operate completely and entirely in that first column and that that's what God desires for us and has desired for us from the very beginning? I had a professor whose uh, theological tagline for everything was always, it's about life. And for Jesus, that's what Sabbath was. It's about life. It's about human flourishing. It's about saving life and celebrating life. And when we celebrate Sabbath as Jesus did, when our Sabbath seeks to be merciful for the purpose of human flourishing, when it seeks to delight in God's goodness, the natural response then, lastly, is worship. In Luke 13, Jesus heals a woman who has been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And by seeking mercy, by being merciful towards her, by seeking her flourishing and her joy, the healing that he provides for her on Sabbath leads her immediately to praising God. It all leads to worship. And if that's if that's the result of, of her experience, then isn't it actually fitting 
that Jesus healed her on Sabbath? Doesn't it actually make sense that Jesus healed her on the Sabbath? If that's what Sabbath is about, if it's about mercy and joy and worship and giving and celebrating life, doesn't this make sense? Isn't it then so ironic that the Pharisees were questioning it? This is why they were so horribly misguided and why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, right? They're so horribly misguided on their understanding of Sabbath and this God who has given them Sabbath. He wasn't just telling them to, you know, loosen up your restrictions a little bit. He was trying to point out that they had completely missed the point. Sabbath was the day that pointed to the life-giving character of a God who seeks to heal his people in every capacity of our lives. Jesus was bringing that healing power, that celebratory character, that life-giving spirit, that restful spirit, once again to a people who had completely misunderstood what this God was all about. Rest and resting in Scripture was always meant to imply resting in the healing presence of a God who seeks to give us life, who seeks to see us flourish in Him. It's not about shoulds or shoulds not. It's about receiving. Receiving the gift. When Jesus came as the physical presence of the Father to this earth and then ascended as King and gave us his Holy Spirit, which descended at Pentecost, Jesus as King was not just bringing the church into existence. He was also initiating the great shalom the great rest of God that the people had been waiting for and are still waiting for in full, waiting to see in full, where the law of God is now in our hearts. It's written on our hearts and we have the presence of that lawgiver within us. The spirit, the holy presence of, the, of God living within us. When we Sabbath, it is a worshipful reminder that we are celebrating the kingship of Jesus who gives his spirit without limit. And whose kingdom is all about human flourishing and joyful delight in the freedom of being sons and daughters of God. Sabbath re-identifies us, in other words. It re-identifies us. It reminds us that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. And that is our primary identity. We celebrate then that there is kingly work going on that we are completely unaware of, that does not depend on us. That the Spirit of Jesus Christ is on the move. Here, in this church, in this body, and in every other church around the globe. That the Spirit of Jesus Christ is on the move and we celebrate that one day the whole world is going to be filled with this life-giving presence of Christ, with this spirit of restfulness. The whole world is going to be filled with the glory of God where everything again is set right and in order. Jesus demonstrated to us what living in the merciful, joyful, worshipful, unforced rhythm of Sabbath looks like. Of delighting in the freedom which says in every season that I can trust in this rhythm. That it is a better way for me, not just for me but also for everyone. Because it is the way of Christ. 
And because it's only in a spirit of restfulness, no matter how we go about taking Sabbath or or engaging in Sabbath, we have to remember that it's only in a spirit of restfulness that the merciful, delightful, and celebratory character of my Lord can be glorified in me. That can't happen when I'm rushing around and running around and trying to fulfill everyone else's expectations for my life. I can't do that then. I can't operate out of the spirit of restfulness that he calls me to operate out of. My desire, our desire needs to be that in everything we do, that he would be glorified in and through us and we in him. And so may we then be marked as a people who rest well, who resist the overworking and exhaustive character of our culture and instead inhabit a rest that points ahead to the great rest which we all long for when Christ comes again. Amen. Would you pray with me? Living God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that uh, your words alone would sink deeply into our hearts this morning. That by your Holy Spirit, which you gave us on that day of Pentecost, that you would pour over us your spirit of restfulness. Lord, that we would be able to delight in your mercy, in your joy, in the celebratory character that you have shown us now week after week. Help us, Lord, to follow you in every way to keep you first. By your Spirit, empower us to be your people on your mission, showing the world a better way, a way that points to you. We pray this all in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.